2 Peter chapter 3. As we step into 2 Peter 3, um, we are going to see the specific attack that Peter has been dealing with in regard to false teachers uh, that he has dealt with in chapter 2. His tone and his language is going to be a little bit different as well, where he has been very harsh and strong in chapter 2. As we get to chapter 3, he's going to turn his attention back to the believers, and he's going to encourage them to have the right perspective in regard to their faith. And, and the big attack that was going on in regard to false teaching was connected to the second coming of Christ. And so Peter, all through chapter 3 and over the next weeks, uh, we will be looking at that. We'll walk through verses 1 through 4 today. So instead of seeing the great hope and the promise that is connected to the second coming, the false teachers had begun to inflate their own egos and ministries by teaching either the resurrection was not going to happen, or the second coming was not going to happen, or um, they were saying that it had kind of basically had already taken place. And so if you read the, the letter to Second Thessalonians, there's a lot of confusion that is connected to the second coming and the rapture um, that is there. But both Jesus and the New Testament authors affirm the reality that Jesus himself said he was going to come again, and the New Testament writers affirm that. As a matter of fact, you can, we can add a third category of that, and Peter's going to deal with that today, is the Old Testament prophets not only wrote of the first coming of Jesus, but they wrote also of the second coming of Jesus. And so this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. And sometime in the mid-A.D. 60s, already in the church, there was an attack on the second coming of Christ. And Peter knows the importance of this to our faith and what it should be doing for us in regard to the hope and the anticipation that is there. And so Peter deals with this. One of the things I've come to know as a reality is that somehow and for some reason the coming of Jesus in the second time has been lost in our time. It's just not at the forefront anymore. It's not that that we don't believe it. It just doesn't seem to be at the forefront of our minds. And I think one of the reasons for that is, is that Jesus 2,000 years ago said, hey, I'm going to come again. And it has been 2,000 years later. And if you're not careful, this delay and this wait, this 200 centuries since he ascended, there can kind of be a mindset, not intentional, that comes in that, that just basically says this, things are going to kind of continue on the way they have always continued on. But I want to remind us this morning that he is coming again, that this delay is not going to continue on indefinitely, that there is a fixed time. We don't know what that is, but there is a fixed time, and Jesus will come back. I think a second thing that is affected the anticipation of Christ's second coming is there have been too many people in my role, um, pastors, authors, bloggers, evangelists, who have predicted the second coming of Jesus, and it has all resulted in one common theme, which is everybody is wrong. I find such a lunacy to people in my line of work, who think that when Jesus said um, to the apostles, you're not going to know when this happens, that people nowadays, because we're so smart in our lifetime, you know, after 2,000 years, we're so much smarter than those that walked with Jesus and talked with them and were with them, that somehow we have a better idea as when this is going to happen. They thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. As a matter of fact, just about every generation looked around at the world and thought, okay, it's going to come. And so I think False predictions of his second coming, I think the 2,000 years of waiting has, has kind of, in some ways, it's kind of drifted out of our mindset. And what Peter wants to do and what I want to do today is I want to put it right front and center. And I want to remind us today, he is coming again. And it's going to be a glorious thing when he comes. If he does not come, guess what the ultimate reality is? This world's going to continue as it is. So what we see today, this is it. Pretty hopeful, isn't it? That's the horrible thought. But if he's going to come again and he's going to judge the wicked and he's going to redeem his people and he's going to establish his kingdom here on the earth, that brings to our lives great hope 
that things are not going to indefinitely just continue in this way, in this rebellion against Him. And so you look at our world today, and there's a mocking of, of our belief system that we believe in the supernatural. Those who are secular historians and those who affirm evolution, they say this, Things are just going to continue in a uniform way from the very beginning. Things have been around for millions of years, and it's just going to continue to evolve and continue to increase. Well, I I just find that interesting as well. We live in the most technological, knowing things in the history of the world, and we are not better. We are not better. The world is not better. Governments are not better. And so this idea that we are eventually going to reach a, pl- uh, a place of mankind has reached utopia. We have reached nirvana. We have reached perfection is not going to come. Because the only thing that's going to happen to this place that we live is that God is going to eventually judge it and destroy it. And it's not going to be around. And he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth where his people will reside and, and live. And so I, I want to remind us today that he is coming again, and this is really important. A couple of other reasons why this is important is Jesus said he was coming again. And if this is not true, then Jesus is a big liar, and let's just all go home and do whatever we want to do this afternoon because there's no hope. If what he says is not going to be fulfilled and it is not true, then we are believing and basing our lives in something that cannot be relied upon. Those that lived with Jesus and followed him around, they believed what he said as well. And so the letters of the New Testament affirm, the gospel writers affirm Jesus talked about that he was going to come again, not just once, but a second time. And then Paul, Peter, and some of the other writers affirm that Jesus was going to come a second time. And they wrote with incredible urgency. There's an interesting passage in Acts chapter 1. Jesus, on the day that he ascends into heaven... He is gathered with a group of believers there, and he ascends up into the clouds, and and they are standing there. And an angel steps in and says this, or or they're standing there, and they and and the the apostles are wondering, are you going to do this now? Is this when you're going to kind of establish things? And so, Acts one six says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And so Jesus said, it is not for you. Listen to what Jesus said. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Listen, church today, we're not smarter than this conversation 2,000 years ago with the apostles. They're thinking, are you about to do this now? And He's like, listen, don't worry about it if it's going to happen now. Here's what you need to worry about. I have something for you to do and to be, and so he says this, don't worry about what the Father's done, but here's the deal. I'm going to give you power when the Holy Spirit comes, and this is what you are to do until I come again. You're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so there was an urgency and a confidence that was connected to the writers. And throughout the last 2,000 years, those who think about the second coming of Jesus There is an urgency and a confidence that is connected to our faith. Why the urgency? Because we want people to know. We want them to know. And so since he has not come back, there's opportunity for more people to trust in Christ. The second reason is simply this. Why the urgency? Is there is a call now upon our lives. If he is coming again, that means he is going to bring judgment. And so that calls us to live lives in obedience and holiness. And this is a problem as well. Watch this. If you leave God out of the picture and there's no second coming of Jesus, there's no coming judgment, the ultimate result is that you can just do whatever you want to do because there's not going to be a cost to the decisions that we make. But the Scripture is really clear from the Old Testament prophets, including Moses in, those, in that writings, Daniel, um, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. They spoke of this coming kingdom, the millennial kingdom, that will come, and so there's an affirmation of this, and so it should move us to live urgent to get the gospel out, and it should move us to walk in holiness. And so let's walk through this this morning, if you would. Look with me, Second Peter chapter 3. Let's read 1 through 4, and then we'll begin 
uh, to walk through and see what Peter has for us this morning. So Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. I'll just stop there just for a moment. Why are they following their sinful desires? Well, they scoff God. So they're not believers in God, so what, you, so what are they following? If they're not following God and there's no fear about judgment, they're following their own sinful desires. So watch this. All this false teaching that's out there in the church today is being taught by men and women who are following not the Scripture. They are following their sinful desires, teaching things in the name of Jesus, but has nothing to do with the gospel accounts and the written account. It has everything to do with their sinful desires. And so Peter says in verse 4, and they will say this about the second coming, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We'll stop there. Next week we'll do 5 through 9. I've already written next Sunday's talk. These two two things, 1 through 9, are really, really important and really encourage you uh, to be here. Here's the first thing I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the importance of faithful commitment to the body of Christ. I love what Peter says here. He says, This is now the second letter that I have written to you, beloved. Five times in chapter 3, Peter uses the word beloved. One time it's connected to the Apostle Paul. He says the beloved Paul. Four times it's connected to the church. And so I want to remind us this morning of the importance of this that I think is really obvious is the church needs to live in Christian community with one another. We need one another. We are not to live this faith alone and all by ourselves, isolated, lone ranger kind of Christianity. We need one another. So let me just give a simple illustration this morning. This section this morning, y'all need that section back there. That section back there, you need that section. That section, you need this. Y'all need each other. We need one another. And so Peter is, is saying this to these believers. Listen, I wrote to you the first time because you were dealing with the persecution under Nero. Nero was killing you. There was great attack. You have had to flee. Um, you've lost your jobs. You've lost your income. You've lost your possessions. You've lost everything. So I wrote this first letter to you. After I wrote the first letter to you, all of this false teaching began to come up and drift into the church. And so now I'm writing to you again, not just relying on my first communication to you, but I'm telling you a second time, Beloved, I love you. And I'm warning you of false teaching. I gave you a perspective in the first letter about how do you deal with persecution. Now I'm telling you how do you deal with false teaching in this mockery of the second coming that is taking place in the church. And so Peter is saying, I'm not leaving you alone. I love you and I'm going to continue to speak into your lives. We need to consistently speak into one another's lives. If you're not here or you're not more connected in community groups or Bible study, you are void of one of the greatest treasures that can be in your life, and it's called the church. Where there are people who are like you. By the way, everybody in this room this morning, I'm just going to be really honest, we are all messed up. In case you didn't hear that, I want to repeat it. Everybody in this room this morning, we are messed up. Now, some of us are more messed up than others, okay? And some of that's our own fault because of the choices that we make. But I just want to remind us, there's nobody in here who's got it all together. This person especially. I have to deal with me way more than you have to deal with me. And I know the trouble that I can cause my own life. And so I need other people in my life holding me accountable, speaking into my life, modeling what it looks like to be a lover of Jesus and passionate about Jesus and anticipating His coming. I need that in my life, and so do you. And so if you want to email this week and say, well, you know, I can just worship at home with my family and not do anything outside of that, I would say to you, okay, I'll, I'll get on board with you if you can show me that in the Bible. See, the call, all of this stuff in the New Testament was written to gathered Christians, churches. 
Should families worship together? Absolutely. Do it on a Saturday night. Do it on a Tuesday night. Do it every night of the week. Do it when you come home from church. But the pattern in Jesus' life was the gospel say, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue every, every time it was open. Jesus darkened the doors of the synagogue every time. It was his practice. It became the practice of the New Testament church. Christians gather together. So I want to remind us this morning, we are to love one another. We are to love one another. Is it hard to love one another? Absolutely it is. Isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to love one another. And so what do you do when it's hard to love one another? Well, you love one another. You bear up in patience. Can you imagine the trouble we would be in if God was like you and I in regard to patience? Can you just imagine? We, we can't put up. We can't put up with our kids. We can't put up with our spouse. We can't put up with our boss and our co-worker. We, we can't put up with anybody for very long. And yet our God, who's a perfectly heavenly father, has such imperfect children. And for 2,000 years, he has delayed his second coming. Why? Watch this. If you know Jesus today, because he's delayed his coming, guess what? You got to enter into the kingdom of God. And it was God's kindness extended to us because the second coming and the delay of this was there. And Peter knows this. The greatest thing that he can give these believers is the truth. Luke loved a guy named Theophilus so much that he wrote him 52 chapters. The Apostle John wrote 50 chapters. Jude loved a group of people called the Beloved, incidentally, and he wrote some counsel to them. James wrote to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Luke wrote Acts. Paul wrote letters because they loved the church. And I believe our strongest community should be in the church with Christians, not outside of the church with lost people. I think we should love the lost. It's there in the scripture. I can prove it. I can prove it. I can prove it. Love the lost. Share with them. But our strongest community should be with people who have the strongest, we have the strongest bond. And it's this, we have all been bought with the blood of Jesus. And it brings us into the family. And, and there's an amazing reality that, that comes with that. And so Peter's reminding these believers, this is the second time that I've written to you. I just didn't say, okay, now there's a new trouble. Good luck. Just use the first letter. Kind of figure it out on your own. But Peter said, I love you enough that I'm writing a second letter to you. And I also love this reality. The Apostle Peter was not arrogant. He could have said, I'm the Apostle Peter. Just hang in there, and I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to bring my presence. And, and, you, and once I come, I will fix the false teaching problem. Watch what Peter does. He says this, calls them to Scripture and says this, here's the answer to false teaching. It's knowing the truth. And once you are reminded and you remember and you know the truth, you can deal with false teaching and say, not true, I'm not going to live that, not buying into that. And so Peter knows the greatest thing he can do is to write to them again and give them this counsel. And the second thing I want to talk about this morning is connected to verse 1 is this, and it is the importance of Christian writing. And I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1 just for a moment, and then we'll come back. And I want to show you something this had a, a, a really huge impact upon my life in, in probably, I guess it's about the last seven years now. About seven years ago or seven and a half years ago, um, it was during the, the Christmas holidays and I got up one morning, I was reading Genesis chapter 1 and, and uh, four themes came out of Genesis chapter 1 that has served to, to really be um, a basis for what we do here at the church. The W4 came out of... Um, uh, Genesis chapter 1, and just, I think Genesis chapter 1 is far, for far too long has been looked at as, oh, that's just a text about the creation. And I think Genesis 1 is a text about how God had ordered the world to be and how it was to continue to be. You get to Genesis chapter 3, and the way God had ordered things gets twisted with the lies of the enemy and mankind choosing sin. But I think what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is to be the ongoing reality for us even today. So let me give you these four things. The first thing is simply this. 
is that God spoke. God spoke. By the way, that is a good thing. That God is a speaking God. Not only is God a speaking God, but as He spoke, Genesis 1 tells us, and God said this. Just look with it. Look at verse 3. And God said. Verse 6. And God said. Verse 9. And God said. Verse 11. And God said. Verse 14. And God said. Verse 20. And God said. Verse 24. And God said. Verse 26. Then God said. Watch. God ordered the world that it would begin. Watch. By the speaking of God. God spoke it into existence. You want to talk about power? God didn't go to Home Depot. He didn't have to have some things that were already made so that He could go get that so He could build things. Our God is so omnipotent and so wise and so sovereign. By His will, He spoke. And everything that we see that is glorious in this world came into being just like that. And I'm one who believes that He did it in six days. Because the Old Testament, not just in Genesis 1, affirms it, but the New Testament writers affirm this as well. I think it was done like that, and I think that's how big our God is. I think that's how awesome He is, and I think that's why it demands our worship. So not only did God speak, but watch that as He spoke, He said, birds of the air, light, day, this is, or light's going to be day. The darkness at night with the moon is going to be night. And God began to define things that He had created. So watch. God gets to define things. We don't get to define things. So when he created this world, and it is his world, when he spoke it into existence, he defined what it was, and he gave creation names. Thirdly, he's sovereign. Thirteen times in Genesis chapter 1, the word let, L-E-T, is there. And he said, let this, let this, let this, let this. Nothing happened unless God allowed it, which means God was sovereignly in control of it. So he is the sovereign creator. So he spoke it. He defined what things were. He is sovereign. He allowed things to be and to be in certain places, dividing the waters, the land, and all of this. And lastly, is he established what was good. Over and over it said this. And God said at the end of the day, he said what? He said, this is good. And you come to Genesis chapter 3, and Satan wants to always twist what God has said, what God has established is good, and He has twisted all of it. So God spoke. God defined what is. God is sovereign. He allows it, and He established what is good, and it is grounded in. See if this is familiar to you. All that is good is grounded in who He is. It is grounded in His will. We know about who He is. We know what His will is because of His Word. And now that we know who He is and what His will is because of His Word, we learn how to walk in Him. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He didn't call the elephants to Him and say, Hey, elephants, i got a plan for you. He called Adam and Eve to Him and said this, I want you to do some things. This is how you walk. And He gave them specific instructions how they were to walk in light of who He is what his will was, and what he had spoken to be. And that's our W-4, straight out of Genesis chapter 1. And watch, as I said earlier, I think that this Genesis 1 is not just the story of creation. I think it's the story of how God intended the world to move forward. Sin entered, caused great chaos. But I just want, I want to remind us, a few hundred years later, Moses was leading the people, and God had Moses write the first five books of our Old Testament. Before Moses began to write those things, God wrote first, and he wrote on some stone tablets. Can you imagine what that day must have been like when God wrote on those stone tablets and he gave them to Moses? And the first time, God had written. He had spoken, but now he had written. Now watch this, church. I'm a broken record, and I'll just be one. Our God is a speaking God, but He is also a writing God. And because He's a speaking God and because He's a writing God, we have something that has come to us in black and white that we can trust in and it's reliable because a God who can speak the world into existence is a God who can take care of His Word that it has come to us. And so God has done this. And so I want, I want to just remind you and I this morning, we are to be readers of what God has written. 
And so I want to encourage you to read the Scripture, read the Scripture, read the Scripture, read the Scripture. And I want to encourage you to read Christian books that are reliable. Not every Christian book at the bookstore in the top seller list needs to be read. I didn't hear any amens about that. So let me say it again. Not every book that's on the Christian bestseller list needs to be read. Okay? So there's stuff out there that's written that doesn't need to be read. But there's stuff that's been written that ought to be read. It's had phenomenal impact upon our lives. Great books. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. And I think every believer ought to read that book. I think every believer ought to read it. There's some other books that have been written that ought to be read. Now they don't... They, here's the Bible and here's Christian books. They're, they're, they're not equal. But they can really help us to understand the authority of Scripture. So it's important this morning, as Peter's dealing with this, that we've got to be committed to one another. We've got to be committed to reading what God has written. And thirdly, we've got to be committed to reminding one another and remembering what has been written. So look at verse, go back to Second Peter chapter 3. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your, sin, your sinful, sincere mind by way of reminder. Reminder, look at verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. And so Peter knows this great reality for the church. We need to be reminded and we need to be people who remember. Here's why. Things fall out of our head, do they not? They just fall out and they're gone if, if we're not consistently doing this. Now I've had people through the years say, why every, not negatively, but they've asked the question, why every Sunday before the sermon do we quote Psalm 119 out loud? Psalm 119 is the large, largest, longest chapter, largest bulk of teaching and writing about the authority and the promise and the hope of God's Word. So why do we do it every single Sunday? Can we take a break from that? And no, we can't. And here's why. If we're not reminded, we forget the importance of what has been written to us. And my job, the role of our elders, as all of us elders, our job with one another is to remind each other consistently that God has spoken, God has established things, He has so ordered things. We are to walk in light of that. Uh, we are to remember what has been written by God through men in this scripture that has come to us, and we, we've got to just remind each other. So Sunday after Sunday, we're not stopping this. I'm going to die one day. I know you think I'm eternal and incredible and going to be here. I'm not going to be here forever. And you know when I die one day, I w- I'm replaceable. Somebody else the next week is going to be up here. And my prayer is that we, through the years, have gotten to a place when I am no longer here, that the next person who steps up here reminds us of the same things that I reminded for decades us of. God's Word, 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 because God's Word reveals who He is, what His will is. We know the consistency and the theme in the Old Testament and New Testament is the same in the Word, and it tells us how to walk. So we have to remember. A couple things connected to remembering. If we will remember, it builds the family. So that's why he says the word beloved. He said, beloved, I, I want you to remember these things. And then he uses this phrase. Look in, look in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, um, the second time that I'm writing to you, by way of reminder, stirring up your sincere mind. So let me talk about sincere for a moment. Originally, the Greeks had two words that eventually became one word to describe what was sincere. Here's the two words. The first word described um, using the sun to shine light on something uh, to show whether it was authentic or not. Um, And so, so this word sincere had to do with the word called pure, and it was using the sun, using mirrors. Have you ever heard of a heliograph? A heliograph or mirrors where the sun comes and shines on that and it shines light on something to show whether it is is true or not and so so they used that back in the day the greeks did this heliograph um, with the sun's rays off of mirrors to see something the second word that they used for sincere to describe it was um, it kind of goes back to ancient greek pottery 
Now, if I was a pottery maker and I made yellow pots and red pots and stuff that you can use at home, you could use on the farm, you could drink inside your house and you could utilize. Back in the day, there were pottery makers. And Colin came by one day and Colin needed some new pots. And I had some pots that I'd made, but I knew that there were some cracks in the pot. And so what, the, what some of the ancient Greek pottery makers did is they would take wax and they would put wax in the cracks where water would leak out and then they would paint over the wax. And over time, as the sun heated up on a pot, if you left it outside, what would the wax do? It would melt. So if the wax had not melted, how in the world would you know if that pot was pure well you take that pot and you would lift it up to the sun and when the sun shone on the pot it would highlight even though it had been painted that there was wax underneath there and light was shining through and you knew that it wasn't true so the ancient Greeks used these two words and then they combined them also with the word for alloy and unalloyed metals if you know anything about that alloyed metals are weaker than unalloyed metals you add things to the purity of a metal, it is weaker. And so they eventually in time combine these two words, using the sun to shine light on things, but also not adding anything to what was true. So when Peter uses this word sincere, that's what he's talking about. Do not add anything to your faith that is not connected to the truth. How do you know if it's connected to the truth? You allow the sun, Jesus, his word, He's the living word to shine light on that to determine whether or not it is true. And so the principle for us is this, is God wants us to pass the transparency of truth test. And it can only be done by shining things up to the truth of God's word. So watch what Peter's doing here in chapter 3. He's come out of this great teaching about false teachers, harsh language. Now he's turning his attention back to believers. And he says, listen, I want to remind you, you are beloved. You've got to love one another. I want to remind you, it's important that God has written sacred text. God is a speaking God. God is a writing God. And I love that he's a writing God, that it has come to us. We go this, this, this summer, um, we're going to, for this year in 2019, we are going to four different nations on mission trips. And every one of those nations, you can... Hold up something that looks like this, but when you actually look at the paper, it doesn't look anything the same because it's different languages. But it's the heart of God's Word that has come to us, and it is accurate. It is trustworthy. We know that God has spoken. So he said, listen, there's an importance of Christian writing. And thirdly, he says there's an importance of remembering and being reminded of the truth of God's Word. And so he says, listen, this builds the body of believers. It awakens a sincere, pure mind. And thirdly, it reminds us to remember the certainty and trustworthiness of the Scriptures. I think today there's far too much Christian amnesia, biblical amnesia, where we have forgotten the things that were so important to our faith and so important that are there, and we need to be reminded of those things and to speak into one another's lives um, to do this. And as we remind one another of the truth of God's Word, we do what Peter does here. He's reminding them of how the kind of life that they are to live, and he's reminding us to be aware that there's going to be teaching, there's going to be proclamation of things that are not true. And I think for every one of us, who claim the name of Jesus, we have no other option but to submit to the Bible. And to be perfectly honest with you this morning, it is a bit contrary to call ourselves a believer and willfully never submit to the written text to follow it in holiness and obedience. We've got to submit. We've got to trust. Because if we don't do so, then we're just relying on our own wisdom. And our own wisdom will fail us. And so Peter says, three places you've got to remember and know that they are certain. The prophets wrote, the prophets wrote trustworthy words that God gave them to write. Jesus, when He came, He is God in flesh. When He spoke, the four gospel accounts who have the teachings of Jesus, they are reliable, heard by eyewitnesses. And then the New Testament letters 
have been written through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So the prophets, the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, and the writers of Jude and Paul and Peter and James, they are trustworthy because God is the author of all of them. And this is prevalent in our day and time today because of a popular pastor in Atlanta stood up one day last year and said, we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Can I tell you this? Jesus didn't. He loved the Old Testament. The Old Testament was His Scripture. He loved it. Now, do we follow all of the stuff that's there in the the ritualistic laws? No, we don't. But do we learn from Daniel and the lion's den? Absolutely we do. So we don't follow that, but we follow in, in regard to all the dietary laws and stuff like that. But listen to me. The Old Testament is absolutely critical. I love it. I hope you do too. Love the principles and the understanding as God gave these things to the people of God, how they ought to walk. And so Peter is saying, listen, you trust the Old Testament writers, you trust the gospel writers, and you trust the New Testament writers. And Peter knew the best thing that he could do was to give them God's word. There's a great verse that the Apostle Paul wrote to this pastor of the Ephesians church. His name was Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 2, 2, This is what he says. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And I love that the reality of our church is we are seeing this happen in a number of different areas that it's really, really important. Let me give you a couple examples. Yesterday morning we had a men's breakfast. Um, It was great. Matt shared with us, challenged us. It was really good. Um, I sh- it started at 8 o'clock. Um, I'm the pastor. I showed up at 8.10. And you know what was happening at 8.10? Um, uh, everything was going as planned. You know why? Because the men's ministry doesn't need me. It's got faithful, reliable men who can run the men's ministry. The women's ministry doesn't need me. I said it a while ago. If we're doing construction this week on the mission trip, if something falls off the roof because we're building it and it kills me and I die in Little Rock, Arkansas this week. I'm not trying to be morbid. Do you know what will happen next Sunday morning? Mark Verlander will be standing here and guess what? LifePoint Fellowship goes on. Can I remind you and I, every one of us are replaceable. Can I remind us, every one of us are replaceable. There's only one irreplaceable one, and that's the magnificent glory of King Jesus. And so we love Him, we proclaim Him, we live for Him, and here's the deal, here's the reality. We all, we work ourselves out of a job. One of the other things that we do at the church right now, we did it last Monday night in this room. Do it five Mondays, every summer, one time in the fall, And one time in the spring, it's called Ignite. And one of the things that we're doing is we have been equipping our students to be leaders and teachers. And last Monday night, I got really excited because I knew we were going to be doing this text this morning. And I looked at what happened last Sunday night. This is the sixth summer that we've done Ignite. We have students in our Encounter Student Ministry this summer who taught Bible studies on Monday night that six years ago were in second grade and third grade. And so we have taught them at Ignite, and now we've said, here you go, go teach our kids. And they teach our kids, they do rec with our kids, and they're pouring their life into our kids. This is what the church is to do. You and I are standing or sitting in this room this morning because somebody along the way had been entrusted with the gospel, and then they told you, And then you are telling others. And we are all here today because faithful men and women thousands of years ago said, I'm going to tell the story of Jesus. I'm going to tell the story of Jesus. And then those people told the story of Jesus. And here we sit today. We are to do this. Fourthly, this morning as we wind things down, is look at verse 2 and 3. We've already touched on 2, but let's put 2 with 3. And I want to talk about the importance of Christian and cultural awareness. So verse 2 says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets 
in the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So I want to I talk about three things real briefly here. We need to have a biblical awareness of what is going on. We want to be aware of what's being taught that's what, what is not true. But the biggest thing that we can do is to remember what has been written in Scripture and to embrace it and to walk in it. Now let me give an illustration. It's not the best time of year for this kind of food. We've just kind of come out of it. But I tell you this, if you ever want to make this for me, you're welcome to bring it over to my house in the wintertime, in the fall. I love a good stew. You like stew? I love stew. And a big old pot, meat, potatoes, carrots. I can't stand green beans or carrots raw, but you put them in a stew and let it soak and all that stuff, and man, just bowl after bowl, bring it on. Well, there's an interesting reality of stew in a big pot that if you just take your ladle and run it across the top and put it into your bowl, is there a whole lot in that bowl? What do you have? Liquid, right? Just liquid. Where's the good stuff? It's at the bottom. kind of settles into the bottom. So you've got to get your ladle and you go deep and you stir it up. And by the way, a good stew, if you want to make a stew, you can make it and keep it at your house for a couple of days and then bring it over to my house the third day because I think stews on the third day are better than they are on the first day. Just some hints if you want to bring that to me in the future. Stick the ladle in, you stir it up, and when you scoop that out, it's got some chunks in there that are pretty awesome. Meat, potatoes, corn, whatever else you want to put in there. Watch. I think churches make a decision to stir up the meaty stuff and ladle from the bottom or churches decide we'll just ladle from the top. And we're the kind of place that's going to put the meaty stuff in there. Peter's the kind of writer who is going to get the big stuff in there. And so he's ladling out some big stuff. And he's saying to this, he's saying, listen, I want to just tell you this. Here's the reality. As this world continues on, Paul and Peter both say there's going to be more apostasy. Watch this. Not outside of the church, but where? Inside the church. This is coming. Church in America, it's present. It's going to get worse. That there'll be more apostasy within the walls of the church. More false teaching connected to the name of Jesus that is not a biblical account of of stuff. And so he just says this. Here's what you do. You stir up and teach the meaty things. And as people learn to eat on those things, then there's a hardiness to their faith that can withstand the false teaching that comes. And the critics are just going to be around. And I don't know why you, you and I get so shocked that our world doesn't think that our belief is interesting. We th- oh my goodness. Since Genesis 3 has entered the world, chaos has reigned. And it's just going to continue to be that way. There was false teaching in the Old Testament. There's false teaching in Jesus' day. There's false teaching in our day. And the worldview of the evolutionists and the secular scientists, they say there's no designer in creation. Therefore, there's no special significance to mankind to even have to even think about God. And this also means to them that there's no accountability to God. The worldview of the secular historian is this. God has no plan for history. There's no second coming. There's no kingdom plan. There's no plan for the future. There's no new heavens. There's no new earth. History is headed nowhere, so just eat, drink, and be merry. There's no urgency. The worldview of the environmentalist is this. Let's devote our lives to protecting the natural resources around us. We are one with Mother Earth. This is a world that is reserved, I would remind you and I, to destruction by fire. So let me just say this. I think we as Christians ought to be good stewards of our world. But God is the only one who's going to destroy this world. We, man, mankind doesn't get the right to do this. We're not going to get to do it. So go kill a deer if you want to. Dig an oil well. 
be a good steward. But here's the reality. God is the one that's going to judge the world and destroy it. For the believer, we contend for the faith. Even though sometimes it doesn't even move the needle for the skeptic. And what God is concerned with and what Peter is concerned with is that we believe his word and we rest in his promises and we trust him. Scoffers are going to, you know what scoffers do? They scoff. You know what mockers do? They mock. We are different than that. We trust that God has spoken. He has written and it's trustworthy. By the way, when Peter writes here, in the last days, there will come scoffers with their scoffering. Scoffing, he's saying this. He's saying, if you leave God out of the picture, here's what you have. You will follow your own sinful desires. And so he puts it there. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Because the environmentalists, the evolutionists, the secular historian, they leave God out of the picture. And so all you have left is man's perspective and man's sinfulness. Fifthly, I want to talk about the importance of the onward life for a moment. So the world has already always had an opinion of us and attacked the people of God and questioned the word of God. It's been around that way. Noah faced it. Abraham went without knowing. Daniel trusted in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted in the fiery furnace. Jeremiah was greatly scoffed at. Peter was crucified upside down. Nero tried to destroy the early church. Martin Luther was put on trial. Believers in China today are being arrested and killed for their faith. This is just the way it's been. And I don't, again, I would just want to say this. I don't mean it flippantly. I don't know why we're shocked that this happens today. It happens. It's the reality. And so what do we do? We just press on. We press on. And they will attack the ancient testimony. So listen, here's what they will do. They say this. Look, look, look what it says there. And they will say, Where is the promise of His coming? So they will look at Jesus' delay and they will attack Him for the delay. And they will say, this is some kind of evidence that He's actually not going to come back. You would think He'd come back. Have you not looked at the world? Do you think God, you think He would be tired of the way the world is? Well, I think He's tired of it. But watch this. He is unbelievably patient with those who mock His name, giving them opportunity to come to faith. Glory to His name that He is this way. So they will attack the integrity and the reliability of the testimony of His coming. And the main reason they do that is they don't want any accountability. Because if all of this supernatural second coming of Jesus is not real, that everything's just to continue on the way it always has been, then you will never have to be accountable. Secondly, they will not only attack the integrity and reliability of the testimony of His coming, but they will attack the ancient testimony. That Old Testament stuff's stupid, they will say. Why would God make those people eat like that? Why would God set up all these festivals? Why would God do this? And they will mock all of the things that are there. Daniel said he was going to come and establish a millennial kingdom. Well, where is it? It can be thousands of years now. And they will mock the prophets in the writing about the second coming of Jesus. And it's called generational spiritual arrogance. Where this generation thinks it's smarter than other generations who were just as diligent to study the scriptures and just as passionate to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we live in the information age and we are messed up more than any generation in the history of the world. It's not more information that we need. It's more of Jesus that we need. That's what's necessary. And there's a word out there. It's called uniformitarianism. And it just means this, that things are going to continue the way they have always been and they will continue that way for the history of the world. And so people who hold this view say this, that the second coming of Jesus is a foolish dream. It's not worth serious thought by smart people. Smart people don't believe stuff like that. And uniformitarianism is a closed system that just has no room for divine intervention or second coming or judgment 
or intervention in history. And we'll talk next week. God has given evidence in times past that he has intervened in the world. And so they will attack the ancient testimony. And not only that, but they will attack the present testimony. So Peter says they will say, and all things are continuing now as they were. And they will speak of our current church culture. And they will say things like this. Here you are 2,000 years later. Jesus said he was coming again. Paul said he was coming again. Peter said he was coming again. So when's he coming again? Y'all are just this. Just talk. And they will mock it. And they will say nothing has changed. It's just continuing on over the last 200 centuries. And so in a sense their argument is this. Since there's no judgment dealt to false teachers in the past and they continue on until today, then there's not going to be any kind of judgment of them in the future. And the issue with that is tremendous pride. And pride exalts itself over the glory of God always. And so, so they just say this, all things are continuing as they were and as they were from the beginning of creation. And so what do we do? We move onward. We just move on. We proclaim, we live it, we embrace it. We tell people, and people believe. You believed one day, right? Somebody told you a story, parents, friend, teammate, spouse, and you believe. This is an onward life regardless of the culture. So how do you do that? Let me give four practical ways that you do that. First one is simply this. It's the importance of the gospel-centered life and has four parts. And the first one is this, is gospel-centered preaching. Gospel-centered preaching is the kind that's not relying on whatever's the most popular thing out there today, but it's relying on the proclamation of the sacred text of Scripture, always pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament and the New Testament, calling people to walk with Him. And church, hear me. Lovingly but strongly today, his word must be enough for us. We are not to be the kind who says, okay, Lord, give me a pillar of fire at night and I'll follow you. Give me a cloud by day and I'll follow. We have got to be the kind who say his word is enough for us. And I think for far too many in our world today, the presence of evil and suffering, this is within the church, the presence of evil and suffering is their argument against the power and truth in the Bible that God will not judge sin. And Peter is saying that God has never been inactive in the world. God has always been intervening. Were you a sinner before you came to know Jesus? I was. And God intervened in my sinful life where I loved evil and I was an enemy of God. And He intervened and He brought me out of the kingdom of darkness and He brought me in the kingdom of light. And Peter said it in his first letter. He said, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. And so God has always intervened evil is present and the word of God is going to deliver on its promises in accordance with God's timetable he has always done that and I believe God is calling us and directing us as believers to wake up to the reality that God's word changes our life so I think we maintain our way in a culture that mocks our faith and mocks the supernatural by being grounded in Gospel-centered preaching, Bible-embracing reading, teaching God's Word. And I think secondly, we do this with gospel-centered community. So I'm going to give an illustration. So pardon me. You will eventually leave this place, LifePoint. Potentially. Hope you don't. If you don't get connected. I, as I said a while ago, gospel, gospel-centered community is really important because here's what it sounds like. And I've, I've been in Collin County now for 10 years. I don't know if that makes me an expert. I think I am. Here's what I've, here's what I've come to know. Here's what I've come to know. You will cho- church hop for the next 15 to 20 years 
to multiple, multiple churches if this is the scenario. You come to a church on a Sunday morning, and you know what you'll find at a church? It's full of nice people. And they will meet you at the parking lot in the door, and they'll slap a name tag on you, even though you don't want a name tag. Some of y'all rebel against name tags. Get over yourselves and your name tag stuff. Just get over it, okay? And so, so churches, watch this. Churches are full of nice people, and somebody will meet you, and they'll say, hey, come sit with me. And you'll sit with them. Hey, our life group meets tonight, and you'll kind of go to life group. And then two years down the road, you didn't really get involved, and there's a crisis in your life, and you'll have, watch, nobody at the church to call because you're not connected. And you'll go, gosh, that church doesn't love me. And you'll go, gosh, let's get on the Internet and let's see some other churches. And you'll go visit another church. And you know what you'll find the very first Sunday you go to that first church? You'll find some of the nicest people in the world. They will meet you in the parking lot. They'll slap a name tag on you. And they will say, hey, come sit with me. And you'll stay there for a couple years and another crisis will come because you didn't get involved. And you'll look around and go, gosh, nobody here is committed in my life. And you'll go to another church. And you know what you'll find at that third church? You will find really nice, welcoming people at that third church. And about three years down the road, you'll have a crisis in your life, and you look around and go, gosh, I have nobody to call. I'm not connected to anybody. My church, this third church that I've gone to, nobody here is friendly either. And watch this. Fifteen to twenty years will go by, and you've been in six or seven churches. And there's one common denominator in those 20 years, and it's you. And I'm here to tell you today that the people in this room are nice. They want to know you, but you know what the problem is? You don't want to be known. And you'll feel alone in the middle of the night having nobody to call because you haven't opened up your life to allow anybody into your life. And I, I'm, not, I'm about to make a statement, and you're, you better not be shocked by this. I have problems. I am not perfect. I am not the best preacher. I'm not the best pastor. I have made mistakes in the past in LifePoint. I have made them in the present. Guess what I will do in the future? I will make mistakes in the future. But I'll tell you what I do know whether you think this or not, that if I was in a moment of crisis, I know that I could call Brian Hill, I could call David Straley, I could call Bill Schroeder, I could call Twyla. I know that there's people in this room that maybe I'm just getting to know. I know that, that if something happened to my family in the middle of the night, I could call some people and you'd get yourself out of bed and you'd come over to my house. And I'm here today to say that you can do that with me and I hope that you'll open up your life enough at LifePoint that you will allow other people to do that to you because guess what? There will be a time in the next 20 years that you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and not know what to do. And it's going to be, I don't know what to do. It's going to be about kids. It's going to be about health. It's going to be about finances. And just, I'm, just, I'm just saying to you today, in a world of scoffing, get connected in Christian community. This church here, LifePoint, 15 years from now, I can promise you this today, it's not going to be perfect. But stay with us, and let's walk through things together, and let's stay committed together. Let's grow old together. Let's see our kids get married. Let's see, let's, let's see one another become grandparents. Scared thought, scary thought, but anyway. <laughs> let's, you'll make it. If you get connected in Christian community, so let me make one. Let me make one statement. We're almost done. Um, is it okay to change churches? Absolutely, if God directs it. But if you change churches because you think everybody else doesn't want to know you and nobody's nice there, that's that's you, and that's not a biblical reason. Or if you're part of a church that doesn't teach the gospel, and you found out that we teach the gospel, that's a biblical reason to come here. So there are reasons to do that, but I just would encourage you, make sure that it's a biblical reason to do so. Thirdly, gospel-centered serving. Serve the church. 
Lastly, be a part of a church, and this is who we are, that's gospel-centered going. We go. Tomorrow morning, 35 of us or so are headed to Little Rock. Three or four weeks, some of our church is going to the DR. Carl is going to Sierra Leone. Some of us are going to Ukraine in August. And in November, we're going to Nepal. We go locally. We go globally. All four, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, other most parts of the world, neither one of those are more important. You know, some people say you should only do local missions. Some people say you should only do global missions. Some people say you should only do national missions. Well, when, when, uh, when Jesus said go, um, he didn't say one was more important than the other. He said to go to all four of them. The church is to embrace all of them, here and there. You go. You do all four of them. And so that's Peter's heart. Next week, I don't know if this is a good sermon or not. This, I, I liked it today, teaching it. Man, next week, uh, next week, five through nine. Good stuff. Hope you're here. Let's pray.